Bonnie is back with me, and we are responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 638. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Just every once in a while, we air a episode to respond to questions that have come in from you since our last Q&A episode. If you have a question you would like us to consider for a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way to get it to us. And Bonnie is here with me to help in responding to questions. Hello, Bonnie. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Always fun to have you here. I'm thinking about housekeeping, Bonnie, for two reasons. One, we just had our (laughs) house cleaned. Oh, yes. Thankfully, this week, thankfully, we have the financial means in life to have someone else clean our house, which I'm so grateful for. And so it is clean around here. And there's some housekeeping for coaching for leaders, too, that I want to mention really quickly up front. A whole bunch of people have emailed me in the last few weeks and have said, why did you remove the episode numbers from Apple Podcasts? So if you use the Apple Podcasts app and you're wondering why did the episode numbers vanish, it wasn't us. Apple decided to change the format of Apple Podcasts. We haven't changed anything on our end. If you use other apps, you haven't noticed this because it's still working. But if you use Apple Podcasts, the episode numbers are still there, but when you scroll through the list, you have to you have to actually click on the episode and then you find the episode number in really small font. This is not ideal. It is not a good user choice. And I have sent my feedback to Apple already. So if you are running into that, the workaround, hopefully Apple will change this at some point because I don't know how anyone benefits from the episode's numbers not being there. But the workaround is if you scroll through the list, click on an episode and you will find the episode number in there. I know that's not ideal, but that's the best way to do it. The other thing you can do is if you're ever trying to find the title of an episode, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash whatever the episode number is. So this one's coachingforleaders.com slash 638. So that's an easy way to track it down. If it's bothersome to you, you might try a different app. Bonnie and I both use Overcast, which is available on iPhone. Pocket Cast displays episode numbers, Google Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much everyone except Apple Podcasts now. So hopefully they'll change it at some point. So anyway, if that's you and use Apple Podcasts, that's a way around that. And then one other quick housekeeping item is if you've signed up for a free membership at coachingforleaders.com and you haven't logged in in a long time, like two or three years, your membership recently might have been removed. Just we're doing some house cleaning on the database. So if you find the Agoda coachingforleaders.com and had an account at some point and think, ooh, it's not there anymore, just set up a new account and you'll be off and running really easily. So there you go. All right, let's actually do what everyone showed up for. Our first question comes in from Jose. Jose says, greetings from Nairobi, Kenya. I'm a big fan of the podcast and recommend it to anyone who cares to listen. Thank you so much, Jose. I became a manager last year leading a team. And one of the things I really struggle with is staying on top of many demands, long-term thinking to propel the team forward, responding to queries from customers and managers, daily tasks, ad hoc tasks, training teammates, etc. Also, at the same time, managing my own personal goals, relationships, and life. How do other leaders do it all effortlessly? Bonnie, I'll let you start on this one. Oh, Jose, (laughs) let's start. 
<laughs> with a myth that it would seem you may have fallen into the trap on. I fall into it as well. And that is this myth of looking at other people's lives and things seeming effortless. This shows up all the time with very curated social media feeds in which people look like they've got it all figured out. And we look at our own lives and we wonder, what's going on here? So I would encourage you to break down the premise of your question. Dave, I don't know a single person who's doing the kinds of things that Jose is talking about effortlessly. Do you? No. In fact, I was going to dispute the entire premise of the question. So you're on the right track. (laughs) Yeah. Something I think we have to be careful of is sort of seeking after productivity for productivity's sake. So another word that I find really resonates with a lot of people and with me is this idea of having ease. Productivity for productivity's sake is just kind of almost feels like that hamster spinning on a wheel. We're never going to catch up. It's never going to be effortless. Instead, though, can we build systems and structures and mindsets that can provide for us more of that sense of ease? And when we have that sense of ease in a workplace context, we're going to be able to show up in healthier ways where we are not creating and contributing to chaos in that workplace, and where we're really able to be present for ideas as they're emerging, and being able to lead well in calm, and confident and caring ways. Another, another myth that I alluded to there is this myth of done. And that's another one that I find I get stuck on. I, I still, to this day, I'm sitting here, you're talking about our house being cleaned. And I'm thinking of my, my inbox of my desk upstairs and in, in our home office. You wouldn't even know that there's an inbox underneath there because the pile has just expanded. And so when I get caught up in thinking that I'm just going to be done, that can really create a mindset of sort of guilt and shame that I'm not there yet. But instead, how I'd encourage you to think about it, encourage myself, is just to think about how we kind of have to stop doing so that we can think about the doing. And the system that I really follow quite quite closely still is Getting Things Done by David Allen. He's got a wonderful book, got published an updated version in 2015, is the process of review. So what we need to be doing is stopping the doing and instead concentrating on reviewing the work, reviewing the priorities, reviewing where things stand. I've never gone through what he refers to as a weekly review or a monthly review or a quarterly review or an annual review without walking out of the process being filled with greater peace and also being filled with a greater sense of purpose. So I would encourage you and myself as I look at that inbox upstairs, that what that is symbolic to me of when my digital spaces and my physical spaces get that clutter going, is that I've got to carve out that time for a review. Jose, I mentioned that I was going to dispute the premise of the question. And that's, by the way, me talking more to myself than to you, because I've asked this question so many times myself. How does everyone else seem to do it all effortlessly? And I love what Bonnie said and the effortless part of that, which I think is a myth. And I'd love to zero in on one of the other words in the question, which is the all. How do leaders do it all effortlessly? And of course, we don't. 
We all try to. Well, I shouldn't say all, but I know I tried to do it all. And so what I've had to learn over the years and what has helped me is just to sit down pretty regularly with myself and just to decide what I can't do. And Bonnie and I even aired an episode on this a few years ago. I'll mention it afterwards on all the things we don't do that we say no to that help us to live happier and healthier and, yes, more productive lives too. And the way that I do this, Jose, is about every 90 days, I sit down and I just do a brain dump of all the things that I'd like to do over the next 90 days, both professional and personal priorities. And I pull up my list that I'm always keeping going, like when things come up of, oh, I really need to do this. Need This needs to be the next project. I'd like to do this with the kids, whatever. And I just have a text file that I keep all that in. And then once every 90 days or so, I pull it up and I sit down for half a day and I go through it all. And inevitably, I end up making a plan that for the next 90 days, there's 20 or 25 things that I'd really like to do. And I can't. There's no way. Like every single time I do this, I end up with like, I don't know, 23 things on the list. And there's no way that's going to happen in the next 90 days. And it's, it's, I wish I could tell you that it's not frustrating, but it's frustrating even as many times as I've done it over the years. Now, it's less frustrating than it was when I started doing it. So the practice of doing it, it well, I should say the frustration's the same, actually, I think. So let me rephrase that. The time it takes me to get over the frustration, though, is less. So rather than me spending weeks pretending like I'm going to do something and having a bunch of things on my task list for the next 90 days and getting frustrated and never having the time in the week to do it, I go through that frustration in one half day. <laughs> During that time, I've I've actually got the list down and I go through the difficult process of, okay, there's 23 things I'd love to do, but I'm a husband, a parent, a business owner, a friend. There's no way I can do all those things. And so let me decide here and now, what are the six that I could really do in the next 90 days? And have that conversation with myself once and go through the frustration. And then the other, however many are, stay on the, the text file for the next time I do it. And interestingly, some of those things fall off like 90 days later. I'm like, oh, I'm glad I didn't do that. Like, It wouldn't have been a good use of my time. But then I zero in on the five or six for the next 90 days. And that's been really, really helpful for a, a lot of years, Jose. So if if you haven't done something like that before, I think it's a really helpful process. By the way, this is a, such an important thing for leaders to do too. Like, you, you can't have 34 priorities for this quarter. There's no way. If everything's important, nothing's important. So I think it's also really important for a team. Like, what are the two or three things we're really doing, either as individuals or as a team or, yes, as an organization, too? And I think if you start there, that that would be a really helpful place to begin. And I'll link up a few other episodes that will be helpful to you as well. This next question is from Jordan. I'm at the senior management level and have made it to the final round of interviews twice for the next level but have not been selected for the position. I've been informed I'm on the, quote, short list, and feedback has been on my executive presence, qualities, experience, and strong ability to coach and consult. In both scenarios where I was not selected for the more senior leadership position, I was told it was because I didn't, quote, tell the story slash how clear enough 
I've been at my current company for years and have been consistently scored as a high performer and do demonstrate, quote, how in the way I execute my job responsibilities, but I'm struggling to communicate this in interviews. I'm concerned that there's a perception I'll need to overcome now that I've not been selected twice. Do you have any advice or are there specific podcasts within your series or books, trainings to help me with this? Do you believe someone can be selected for a job they've been declined for twice? While feedback was very positive outside of my storytelling, I'm concerned as the hiring manager and committee would be the same. Okay, let me take the easy answer first. So can you be selected for a job after you've been declined twice? Yes, absolutely. I've seen it happen many times, and it's happened to me. Early on in my career, I was passed over for a major promotion in the first few years of my career to a new level. I then got passed over for that promotion a second time, and the third time, I got it. And it ended up working out really well. And sometimes it is you, and sometimes it's the organization, and a lot of times it's a combination of factors. So yeah, absolutely. Why not? Keep going if it's important and it's something that is important for the next step of your career and for the organization and if people are affirming of you continuing to move forward. So absolutely. So now to the feedback specifically that you've received, specifically on the storytelling, the how-to, one of the things I always try to spend a little bit of time assessing whenever I get feedback or I'm inviting one of our members to think about feedback that they've received is to think of, is this feedback valid? And how do I kind of process that feedback? And so I think a really helpful episode would be episode 143 to listen to with Sheila Heen. She's one of the original authors of the book Difficult Conversations, and she wrote a book more recently with a co-author, and I can't remember his name at the moment, but called Thanks for the Feedback. And if you listen to that episode, it is a really helpful, it's like a six-step model of when you get feedback, how to process it. And thinking about who the feedback's coming from, how valid is it? And I've just found that to be a really helpful model over the years. It's also a really helpful model for how to solicit feedback from people when you're not hearing it so much. And the reason I say that is because sometimes the storytelling, the how-to, especially in interview situations, sometimes we hear really generic things like, you're not hearing this in your case. You mentioned this actually as a strength, but people will hear things like terms like executive presence. Well, what does that mean? That means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I think some process of just determining what is that feedback, how valid is it, and then trying it out. Like as you get feedback and you change your behavior, like testing that out, especially on some of the people that may have given you that feedback in the past. And you know these folks, so that's the beauty of it. You have relationships, so you could go back and say, hey, I've changed this thing or I've started doing this, like, is this what you were thinking? Is this what you were looking for? And I think Sheila has a really wonderful model on that. So as far as frameworks, two that I'd recommend that I think are really helpful. On storytelling specifically, David Hutchins is our resident storytelling expert. He's been on the podcast, of, oh gosh, half a dozen times over the years. One of the things that he has that I love is his story deck cards. I think it's story deck. If I'm, I'll put a link in the episode notes. It's a really amazing, easy to use and powerful set of tools. It's a little box. You get it from, it's on Amazon. I'll link it up. And it has frameworks for stories, like the most common 
20 or 30 different kinds of stories that leaders would tell in organizations. And he teaches you the framework of how to tell a story. He gives you examples. When would you want to tell this kind of a story? Where is it going to be helpful and not? And it's really, really well done. And we've done episodes with David in the past. I'll link to one of them afterwards. But the story deck cards from David, I think, is just a wonderful starting point for anyone who wants to do a better job of storytelling. And of course, storytelling is the language of leaders. So it's a wonderful starting point for that. And then the other resource I'd recommend is the episode that Tom Henschel and I did a year or two ago on how to make your ideas heard. And it's I think Tom has this wonderful model of sorting and labeling, of being really clear what you're trying to say, especially in a formal interaction where you're taught where you're in an interview or you're briefing an executive team or you're talking to a customer. How to have that message come across really clearly and concisely. Tom's framework for that is wonderful. I think listening to that would be a really useful place to start. And then finally, Jordan, just start now. So don't wait for the next hiring committee. As you start doing some of these tools, practice it out. Practice it with colleagues. Maybe practice it with some of the folks that are on that committee and will be in the future. Ask for feedback. Start utilizing these tools now. You don't want to start practicing them the next time that it's really in that that high visibility situation. So I think if you begin now, it's really going to help you to build that muscle so that when you're next in that situation, you're really able to communicate in a way that you want to. In the answer to the last question, Dave and I both questioned the premise of the person asking us the question, and I'd like to do that a little bit here. There's a wonderful book, which I've probably mentioned 20 times on this podcast over the years, called The Empowered Manager by Peter Block. And the whole premise that he begins that book on is that too many of us get into these dependent relationships with our workplaces. And this can actually bring out a lot of really unhealthy family scripts, this idea that we're dependent. When you're a child and you're dependent on your parent, yeah, that's important because you need your parents for things like feeding you food and, and things like that and caring for you. But the goal of parenting would be that, that children eventually become independent and eventually are healthy enough to have interdependent relationships with other people, both at work as well as in their personal lives. So I would encourage you to really start to wrestle with, do you have a sense about your workplace that you are dependent on it for both literally and figuratively feeding you in the sense of there's so much energy that goes to getting to that next level, moving up. And that's all kind of according to the workplace's expectations of you. Or do you have an interdependent relationship where you are contributing good things to the organization and the organization is contributing things back? I would tell you how freeing it is to for my for myself how freeing it has been a, a lot of times in my career to just not buy into that whole thing just because it's printed on an org chart and it looks like that next box up must be delightful i will tell you it, having worked at all different kinds of levels and organizations i i would just say if you're able to make the sufficient remuneration to cover your expenses and have a little bit of time for some <laughs> additional things the research would suggest 
you don't get so much more happier the more money, more prestige, more power, higher up you are on that org chart. So when we can, in our lives, free ourselves from feeling a grip on we kind of have to do this next step, that can help us in two ways. It can help us because then we're less fixated on it. And a lot of research around where our attention goes, the more we pay attention to something, the larger it becomes. Could we perhaps pay less attention to that kind of sense of advancement and instead pay more attention to the things that give us a sense of meaning and significance? And the last thing that I would say to capture all of this again is I encourage less of a focus on moving up and instead more of a focus on meaning, significance, impact, which can happen at any level in an organization. Thanks so much for the question, Jordan. Our next question is from Ahmad. Ahmad asks, I'm doing research on how to build a high-performance culture which recognizes and honors excellent performers while identifying low performers to help them grow, change, or seek alternative opportunities. I would appreciate it if you could give me helpful episodes or books that might help me discovering changes to be made within my organization. I guess I'm going with three for three today, Dave, on questioning the premise of a question. (laughs) I am typically in my career not a huge fan of systems and structures that help to identify low performers to help them grow, change, or seek alternative opportunities. This does not mean that I don't notice when someone isn't performing, but it does mean that I don't want to purposefully create systems and structures that seek that out. I would rather that it get bubbled up organically. I am not a big fan of these weeding out kinds of cultures where you look to your left, you look to your right, and only one of you is going to be able to cut it. I am not a big fan of performance management systems that arbitrarily say you can only rate so many people as A's and so many people as B's and so many people as C's. So if that's the kind of system that you're seeking, Ahmed, I would say I'm probably not going to be giving you the greatest of advice for that. I would instead encourage you to look to the research that Gallup has done about what does it look like when you flip your question on its head and instead look to identify the high performers and help them grow, change, and seek even greater or or different opportunities within your organization. This model used to be called the Strengths Finder, so many of us grew up knowing it by that name. Today it is called Clifton Strengths. And rather than looking to your left, looking to your right, only one of you is going to make it and the other ones are going to be asked to exit the organization. We look at the organization as a different set of strengths, none of which are good or bad, but their models, their research would suggest that if something is not a strength of mine, I shouldn't focus on it other than to find other people who do have the strengths needed for a particular thing being asked. So I'm a big fan, by the way, there are 
variations of the kinds of reports that you might purchase from Clifton Strengths. There's one that shows your top five strengths. Some of you have have likely seen where someone might even have that listed in their email signature or on their door or something like that. I'm not a fan of that top five because I feel so much of the richness of the data gets lost when you only see the five. You don't know what's number six. So there are there's a report you can purchase that gives you the top 10 that gives you a little bit more information. The one that I have found the most benefit from as a professional is one that lists all of those strengths from one to 34, I believe it is 34, 34, yeah. 34 strengths, so that the ones that are at the bottom for me are ones, why would I spend any time trying to get better at those things? I mean, that's just absolutely silly. So you can see in an organization where I might be wrongly positioned in the organization, I would be a low performer in certain circumstances because someone might be trying to get me to be good at things I'm just not inherently good at. But what I'm so thankful that the person I report to in my university He knows me really well. He knows those strengths really well. We're actually going through a pretty major reorganization right now at the university. And I feel for the first time, perhaps ever there, or certainly in a very long time, my strengths are so well aligned for the work that I'm being asked to do and to lead. And in those cases, it's never 100%. In those cases where they're not, I have other leaders who I work closely with who report to me they're able to compensate for compensate doesn't even feel like the right word. I think compliment would be a better word. They're able to compliment my strengths and we're able to achieve magnificent things together through that collaboration. We have, I make it always optional for people, but people have been open about sharing their strengths. So we're able to see a map of our team and where those collective strengths are rather than only looking at it as individuals. So that'd be another thing, Ahmed, I would tell you, rather than looking at individuals, you can also look at composites of teams and see where a team may be lacking. There are four broad areas in Clifton Strengths, and and you can plot the different strengths, and you can go out in the influencing category. We, we collectively, as a team, don't have what we need, so that perhaps your next hire could ha- could bring a lot of those influencing strengths to the team, or perhaps a restructure needs to happen, workloads work. Types of work being asked to be done needs to be considered such that that those teams are able to perform highly. I would encourage you not to go find systems and structures to identify low performers, rather identify places where people's strengths are mismatched with what they're being asked to do, and that being a far more humane and also effective way of designing organizations. Ahmed, everything that Bonnie said, I'd also endorse Clifton Strengths, Strengths Finder. We have used it for years with our Academy members. It's a wonderful tool. A couple of additional tools that might be helpful. You mentioned building a high-performance culture, which honors excellent performance. One of the researchers I think is really great for everyone to know about on leading high performers is Ruth Gotian. She's done a ton of research on how leaders can do better at leading and empowering the highest performers. We did an episode with her last year. I will link it up in the notes. If you are leading 
either a team or individuals who are really high performers, I think knowing her work is really, really important. And listening to that episode will definitely get you on the starting point for it. And to Bonnie's point, I'm I'm also really cautious of tools that are trying to weed people out. And that's one of the reasons that I really love Jonathan Raymond's accountability dial, because Jonathan teaches people how to use it in a way that is both in situations where you're giving praise and also situations where you're coaching and helping people to correct. And it's a model that works both ways and allows people then to respond in the way that they're ready to respond to. And so definitely check that out as maybe one of your resources as well. I will link to that for those who are not familiar with the accountability dial. And then the other thought I have as well is there's sometimes the assumption I know I had this assumption early in my career, and when I went to work for Dale Carnegie and got hired by clients to come in and teach their employees, I had the the wrong assumption early on that everyone both wanted to and should move up to the next role, whatever that was, of becoming a manager, senior manager, director, and that that their aim and my job was to help them to do that. And I learned really quickly, no. Like that's not actually great at all for all kinds of reasons. One is not everyone's ready for those roles, but perhaps more importantly, lots of people are really happy in doing what they're doing and really are amazing at the roles that they have and would not actually serve the organization well or their own careers by moving up into the next level. And I love the distinction that Kim Scott makes in her work on radical candor between rock stars and superstars. And she, and I hope I get it right. <laughs> which one's which, but I believe she says the superstars are the people who are on the fast track, the high performers, they're looking for the next position. The rock stars are the people who do their job really, really well, consistently. They always meet or exceed expectations, but they're not necessarily looking for and in fact, often don't want the next position, the next role to move up the org chart. And Bonnie, you and I both have tons of people in our lives who fall into that category and are incredible, amazing contributors. And the other thing that I would offer, I think it's one of the beautiful things that Kim, I think Kim points this out in that model too, is we can be superstars and rock stars at different times in our careers and that people around us are. For example, when I started at Carnegie my first few years, I really tried to be a superstar and I tried to be on that fast track. And then once we once we started having kids and I knew at some point I'd leave Carnegie and the Coaching for Leaders project started, I made a really conscious decision to be much more of a rock star, at least I tried to be, and not necessarily be doing the things to move to the next role, but just to do a really great job with the role that I had, which was also really important to the organization at the time. So I think that that, that model, by the way, there's a wonderful article that was written about this distinction several years ago. I will find it and post it. So if that's helpful for folks as far as just something to latch onto a mod, sometimes it's just helpful to have a, a model or a framework. I think those three are really helpful on this. I mentioned working at a university, and this next shift in our conversation makes me chuckle a little bit. At academic conferences, the meme is always that somebody raises their hand and says, I don't as much have a question as I do a comment. And so we have instead of a question, a comment, but it's not that kind of a thing where someone's going to go on along. But someone named Jenna wrote in and said that Dave had aired an episode recently with Jill Schlesinger on how to make smarter investments in your learning. And we got this note from listener Jenna, who made a point about tuition assistance versus tuition reimbursement. And Dave, I know you wanted to say something about that. 
I did. And Jill and I mentioned in that conversation, like both of us weren't entirely tied into like some of the things that were happening in tuition reimbursement and assistance programs. And I failed to make this distinction. And I'm so glad Jenna pointed it out because I think it's a really important one, both for each of us as employees in our organizations, but also for leading organizations and benefits too. So first of all, there is a distinction between tuition assistance and tuition reimbursement. If an organization is has as part of their benefits package of supporting employees and continuing their education, and usually this is for higher education institutions, the distinction is, is tuition reimbursement is a benefit that allows an employee to request and to get approved to take a class and they then go, once they get that approval, and register at often a college or university, and they pay that those tuition dollars to the university. They take the entire class. They complete it. Many organizations have a requirement that their employees need to have a certain grade or score or pass-fail or something like that. And then after the course is done, they submit their paperwork to their employer, and their employer then turns that around. Well, as you would imagine, depending on the length of the course— and how long paperwork takes, that can be three to four months where that employee has that money out of pocket for that class. The distinction with tuition assistance is tuition assistance in many organizations is where the employer either pays the university directly or pays up front for that cost. And that's that way the employee is not floating that cost for the class during the time the class is going on. Now, I was thinking about this because when I worked at Dale Carnegie, many of our Carnegie courses were recommended for college credit. And so we had a partnership with a local community college to allow our courses to be utilized in some of the large Fortune 500 organizations here in Southern California. And it was a great partnership because the college benefited, we benefited, employees were able to use our programs, the organization that had the benefits were able to get those benefits utilized more. So it was, it was a win-win all around, but it was many of these employers had tuition reimbursement programs. And the challenge was we worked with a lot of employees who worked on production lines, who were blue collar, who did not have college degrees, did not often have any college education at all, hourly employees. So they were full-time, they had benefits, but they didn't have the ability to fund something through tuition reimbursement. So the reason that I mention this is is twofold. One, I think the distinction is important to know if you're an employee in an organization. A lot of the people listening to this podcast have the financial means that if you took a class for three to four months that you could pay that amount and then get reimbursed later. But that's not the case for a lot of folks. And many organizations unintentionally exclude Many of their employees, especially folks who do not have advanced education, who are not in as good financial situations, by only having a tuition reimbursement option. And the way we worked around that at Carnegie is we just decided we would allow everyone to defer their payment to us until the program was complete. But a lot of educational institutions don't have the ability or the resources to be able to do that. And so one of the things to know is if you have a tuition reimbursement program, is helping people to figure that out. How do they actually do the paperwork? How do they actually make the request? Supporting them through that process. I was amazed at how just a little bit of time that we'd spend would help someone to begin to take a class, sometimes take a college class for the first time. And then once they figured out the system, they would be in really good shape going forward of continuing classes. And it was fun to see people do that and go eventually complete degrees because they had figured out how the system works. 
And the other reason I mention it is a lot of us have influence in our organizations of what these policies look like. And I know it's not always easy to to change that policy, but if you're an organization that really has a heart for wanting people to actually utilize the tuition reimbursement benefits the organization has, I think it's worth looking at this and at the very least teaching people how to use it, looking at opportunities to be flexible, because it helps you to be much more inclusive of the entire population of employees if you offer the ability for them to make it easier to be able to invest in their learning. And of course, that investment ultimately comes back to the organization. We mentioned a lot of resources in this conversation. They're all linked up in the episode notes in addition to a number of past episodes that we thought would be helpful to you. One of them is episode 143, How to Get Way Better at Accepting Feedback. Sheila Heen was my guest. We talked about her book, Thanks for the Feedback, and some of the invitations she makes to us on how to process feedback when we get it and also how to do a better job at being able to invite that feedback, episode 143 for that. Also helpful is the framework from David Allen, Getting Things Done, probably the most popular time management productivity system of recent years on episode 184. David talked about getting things done, the key tenets of it, took questions from listeners, a really great starting point if you're looking for a good framework. Speaking of good frameworks, episode 306, Five Steps to Hold People Accountable. Jonathan Raymond talked about the accountability dial if you're looking for a way to do a better job with accountability. That's a wonderful starting point. So many folks in our listening community have used that so successfully over the years. A great place to start episode 306 for that. And we talked in this conversation about what to do and also what not to do. And a big part of that is planning and deciding on making choices. Two episodes that'll be really helpful for you on that. Episode 319, the way to stop spinning your wheels on planning. I walked through step-by-step the planning process I use. In fact, just did it yesterday of deciding in advance how I spend my time. And then Bonnie and I talked together on episode 417 on finding joy through intentional choices. That was essentially a conversation about all the things we don't do. (laughs) There's a bunch that we don't do. And big part of deciding what's important is also deciding what's not important. Uh, Many of you found that conversation from us helpful, episode 417 for that. We talked also a little bit about communication and messaging and storytelling in this conversation, episode 518 with Tom Henschel, The Way to Make Sense to Others, a super helpful way and a framework from Tom on sorting and labeling to be able to get your message across. And then, of course, our resident storytelling expert, David Hutchins, episode 553, the four storytelling mistakes leaders make. And then finally, I mentioned the work of Ruth Gotian, how to lead and retain high performers. If you are leading high performers, I hope you are. They definitely show up in the world a little differently than a typical employee, episode 567, on how to work with them well, support them well, and Ruth Gotian's work, a wonderful resource for that. Of course, all of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. As I mentioned on the front of this conversation, you know, sometimes the way things show up in the podcast apps and the public directories, we don't have control over on the episode numbers and the formatting, but we certainly have the ability to control all that on our website. That's one of the reasons the free membership is there, to be a resource for you so you can find exactly what you need, whether it's by episode number or even more importantly, by topic. Whatever you're looking for right now, whether it is on having difficult conversations or building your coaching skills or talent development, or maybe it's your own career path, 
so much inside of the free membership library. All of the episodes are searchable by topic since 2011. Take a moment to go over to coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership. It's one of the many benefits inside of your free membership. And if you're looking for more from me, I'd invite you to look at Coaching for Leaders Plus. You know, these Q&A episodes, Bonnie and I always love to do. And of course, many of the conversations we have here on the podcast are featuring the work of others. And a number of you have reached out to me and recent years and say, hey, I'd love to hear more from you directly and get your perspective on some of the key questions around leadership. I am doing that every month through a long form article that goes out to all of our members in Coaching for Leaders Plus. It is one of the key benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. And if you'd like to find out more about that, just go over to coachingforleaders.plus. That is a wonderful way to get started with more. You'll find all the details there inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you back next Monday. Take care.